After the Buddha's awakening, he taught for 45 years. And while there were many different spiritual teachers and teachings in India, in that area, when he was alive, so he was quite naturally questioned by um, believers of other traditions or those who practiced in other traditions, much like we now here in the West have access to all the spiritual teachings of many different traditions and cultures and times. And when the Buddha was asked questions that were more metaphysical in nature about unanswerable questions, which essentially were coming from the beliefs of other um, traditions, he would tell a story. He said, suppose that while someone was walking in the forest, they were wounded by an arrow. And his or her friend, seeing the wound, wounded person, took them to a doctor to be treated. If, when arriving at the doctor's, the one who was shot with the arrow said, wait a minute, wait a minute, before I'll let you treat me, I need to know who shot the arrow. I need to know what kind of feathers were on the arrow and what the tip of the arrow was made from and the kind of wood also and where that person lived and all these uh, associated facts of the incident. And the Buddha said that before all those questions could be answered, that person would suffer and die. And he said that you're asking me those kinds of questions about metaphysical reality and all kinds of beliefs before you could find the answer to all of them, you are going to suffer and your life is going to come to an end. So he said, I'm not teaching the answer to all of those questions. What I'm teaching is dukkha, the cause of dukkha, the end of dukkha, and the path to the end of dukkha. And wherever the teachings of the Buddha have gone, from India to uh, the Tibetan Plateau, to China, to Southeast Asia, to Sri Lanka, wherever the teachings of the Buddha have been carried, primarily by monks traveling with uh, merchants, then the teachings of the Buddha would meet with the local indigenous cultural spiritual traditions. And over the course of decades, centuries, there would be a merging, mixing, a coming together of the Buddhist teachings with the local indigenous uh, spiritual traditions. Now we have in uh, Tibetan tradition, we have um, Tantra. In China, we would have Chan. In Japan, we would have Zen. In Thailand, Burma, and Sri Lanka, we have Jhana. And the source of all of those words, Tantra, Zen, Chan, and Jhana, is all the same. It means meditation. <clears throat> so wherever the teachings of the Buddha have gone, the teachings are, there are basic root teachings that all the traditions of the Buddhist teachings rely on. And maybe the most basic or the most fundamental of all the traditions is the teachings on the Four Noble Truths. Because it is what the Buddha, or I should say the Bodhisattva realized in order to become the Buddha. Is, oh, this is the way it is. This is the way things are. And whether there's a Buddha in the world to articulate what the truths of reality are, the truth of the way things are is the truth of the way things are. Even if you don't know it, never heard it, and nobody's ever articulated it. It still is. You know, there's always been a law of gravity well before it was ever articulated as a natural law of gravity. Well, the Buddha spoke of the natural laws that affect the unfolding of the mind. One of these laws is, you know, the Four Noble Truths. So we can 
rely on, and maybe we should deeply look at what are these Four Noble Truths, because whatever tradition of Buddha's teachings that we hear or read or practice, we can know that they're rooted somewhere beneath all of the cultural uh, manifestations, the rituals and the, the robes and all that stuff. Underneath all that is some understanding of the Four Noble Truths. So it's Four Noble Truths is something of the bedrock of the Buddha's teachings. So, what are the Four Noble Truths? And more precisely and particularly, what has it got to do with us sitting here? How do we confirm? How do we even see? How do we recognize the Four Noble Truths in our experience here over the last five or six days? Well, the first Noble Truth is called Dukkha Satcha. Satcha means truth. Dukkha means Dukkha. This is the the truth of Dukkha. Now, I say dukkha and not translate it into a single word because it's not easily the the full range of meaning or experience that dukkha refers to is not easily (coughs) encapsulated by a single English word. But when I first started practicing the Dharma in 75 and I heard my first discourse on the Four Noble Truths, I believe that I heard the First Noble Truth is well, life is suffering, or it's the truth of suffering. I was, you know, I was in my mid-twenties, and I was full of it and energetic and had my whole life except for the first 20-some years to live. And, you know, when I heard life is suffering, I didn't get it. It's like suffering, what's, what's suffering? I mean, I was, you know, I'd never sat before. I'd never done one minute of meditation before I ended up at a two-week retreat. I was sitting up back, leaning against the piano. My body was in excruciating pain. My mind was in utter, absolute, chaotic disarray and agony. But I wasn't suffering. <laughs> I mean, suffering to me, I now realize, suffering to me, if I was suffering, I was a failure. That was, that was my condition. If you're suffering, you're a failure. So I, I couldn't open to it. I, I could not open to the, to the first noble truth. Later, after eight years of doing retreats like that, I ended up in Burma, and one of my teacher's translators translated the word dukkha as the oppressive nature of phenomena. I could get it. You ever been in a hot season in Burma? It's like, <laughs> that's oppressive, you know, dealing with hunger when you can't eat afternoon, that's oppressive. Sleeping only four hours a night, that's oppressive. I, I got it. Okay. I began to open to, oh, that's what dukkha means. Okay. So what I, why I'm saying that is we can hear dukkha and we can, you know, we can debate it, but it takes some ongoing mindfulness, mindful awareness to actually see it in our own life. So what does dukkha mean? Dukkha first refers to pain. That's the pain of the body that we all feel when you're tired, when you're hungry, when you're injured, you know, growing up, toothache, slam your finger in the door. That's pain. You know, physical pain is so obvious. We've all experienced lots of physical pain, right? Anybody hasn't experienced any physical pain? Yeah. Okay. Well, it also refers to the obvious mental pain, loneliness, feeling uh, alienated, feeling uh, fear, uh, feeling uh, betrayed, uh, discriminated against, feeling uh, cut out, feeling uh, inadequate, feeling uh, like you're being used. I mean, it's just and, and then all the emotions of anger, fear, frustration, disappointment, self-pity, you know, it just goes on and on. And we've all experienced all of that, too. It's obvious. You know, we all experience that sometimes in our life, and maybe frequently, maybe in a recurring, enduring, ongoing way, we experience that kind of obvious pain. This kind of 
obvious pain, both physical and mental, is called dukkha dukkha. Just, just so you get it, dukkha dukkha. Okay, but life isn't all pain. There's plenty of experiences that we have in life that are pleasant. So the second experience that dukkha refers to is the refers to the fact of change. We live with a level of insecurity and vulnerability that we just can't get around. So even though right now we may have enough health, wealth, discretionary time to be here doing this, that's nice. And we may have worked our life up till now to establish some sense of security in our career, our relationships, family, if you will, uh, in our uh, having a decent car or whatever means of transportation you use and having the education to kind of navigate 21st century life in the West. That's, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of accumulated knowledge and physical, mental, emotional, personal, psychological resources that we have gathered around us, within us, you know, in all of our relationships in order to feel secure, to feel safe, to feel competent, to live safely in our world. And yet we know that any of those conditions can change on a dime. Any one of us could, you know, go to the doctor for the next annual exam, get a diagnosis that forever changes your life. We don't have to wait till the next doctor's visit. It could happen tonight. We don't know, right? You remember, it's now six years ago, northern Japan, the community that was living there, just, you know, quite happily living their life for generations. And the earth goes, the water goes, and their whole accumulated village, city, what gets washed out to sea, and everything with it. And then just to top it all off, the nuclear reactors go spewing out their stuff and you can't live there for the next couple hundred years. Those people in Japan were living their life with all the security that can be acquired and all of the resources and all of the relationships and all of the government support and it, it, everything, just like we are right now. And little did they know that they were living in a very insecure, unstable situation just like we don't recognize it most of the time. But we all have a tsunami heading towards us, each one of us. It can be a financial tsunami. It can be a political tsunami. It could be a physical health tsunami. It could be a relationship tsunami. It could be a job tsunami. It could be any. There's all kinds of, well, unpredictable change awaiting us. And so we live with this insecurity. And, and it really doesn't matter how much you've acquired and accumulated and where you live and who, who you live with and, and your job. It, it, it really doesn't matter. It's all vulnerable to change outside of your control. Right? And so we live with this insecurity. We live with this vulnerability. We live with this hope that it all holds together. And it's just on the periphery of our vision. You know, we just, we're just right here. Just, we, we live with anxiety. We live with what-ifs. And we often miss that this is what, this also means dukkha. This is, this is dukkha. Not that pleasant experiences of abundance and health and resources and relationships isn't pleasant. It's pleasant, but it's insecure. It's unstable. It's vulnerable to immediate and, well, catastrophic change. 
And we all live with that. Everyone lives with that. It's not like, I mean, I used to think, well, I'm feeling anxious because I just haven't got my act together. I haven't really got the job I need to provide the security I need financially. So, well, when I get that, then I'll be secure. You know, my car for many decades was not very good. It was pretty unreliable. And it's like, well, if I could just get a nicer car, then I'd feel safer. <laughs> it, you know, we personalize insecurity. It's not personal. It's universal. And this is the teachings of the Buddha. This is what we often miss. We often personalize our pain. We personalize our anxiety and insecurity, thinking, I just haven't got my act together. I, 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 there's something wrong with me, or I've got to try harder, or I've got to work more, whatever. Even if you do, well, we still have this vulnerability to pain and insecurity. Huh. Okay. That's called, basically, dukkha dependent on change, conditioned by change. <coughs> As if those two weren't bad enough, there's a third uh, kind of experience in life that's also called dukkha. And there's two versions of it, the macro version and the micro version. And the macro version is this, we're born. That's painful for some people. And then our parents or other primary caregivers doing the best they can, thank you dear mom and dad, uh, doing the best they can, they try to take care of you. And they feed you, and they clothe you, and they try to get you to sleep, and they poop you, and they clean you, and they get you clothes, and they coo you, and they lullaby you, and they do everything they can to keep you happy. Because if you're not happy, they're not going to be happy. Right? So they do everything they can. And as soon as they can, they enlist the support of aunts and uncles and peers and friends and neighbors and babysitters and your siblings to kind of help carry the load of this little bundle of joy into the world happily. And at some, you know, kind of early age, actually, you know, after half a dozen years, six, eight, ten years, maybe, maybe a little more, depending on how it goes for you, you get the message. You're on your own. You got to take care. Of you got to take care of yourself. I'm here for backup, but you're gonna have to take care of yourself. And the first thing you got to ensure is that you're gonna have food to eat for the rest of your life. And if you want to eat, you got to have money to buy food. If you want to earn the money, you got to have a job. If you want to get a job that's going to feed you and all of your dependents well, you got to get an education. So therefore, you got to go to school for 16, 20, 24 years. There's some dukkha. Right? And maybe you'll be lucky to get a job at the end of it. Right? And then what? Well, uh, not only do you have to have food, you've got to groom yourself every day. Every day. You've got to get up, you've got to bathe, you've got to do your hair, you've got to do your teeth, you've got to groom, groom yourself and go to your closet and pick out some clothes that you have already purchased with some of the other money that you earned and get ready to go to work. You go to work, you work all day, to earn your pay, to be able to continue to keep working like that, to be, you know, you get it? And then, you know, at the end of the day, you're kind of exhausted, you got to go home and you want to get some dinner, so you go home, on the way you stop off at the grocery store where everybody else is stopping off on the way home from work, and you get one of these little carts and you push it around up and down the aisles, looking for something healthy to eat, you know, and you pick up a few things, a few frozen things, a few fresh things, a few canned things, box things, bag things, everything. You take it to the line to check out and you wait until it's your turn. You send everything through the line. They put it all in bags and hopefully somebody will carry it out to your car for you. Or you'd carry it in your own bags and you get on the public transportation. When you get home, you take all those bags out of the car, out of the bag, you take them into the house, spread them out on the counter, Put the frozen stuff in the freezer, the cold stuff, the chill stuff in the refrigerator, the box stuff in the cupboard, and you put it all away. Whew. Okay, fold up the paper bags, put it in the recycling. Take the empty bottles, put it in the recycling, throw the things, the, the wrapper into there, put the receipt someplace where you can remember it for tax purposes. Whew. Finally, pour yourself a drink, go in the living room, and relax right? for a half hour. Then you get back up. Get all that stuff out of the cupboard and the refrigerator and the freezer, <laughs> mix it up on the, on the sideboard, you know, scramble it up, cook it up, put it in the oven, bake it, whatever it is you got to do, work for an hour, get this meal together, 
put it on the table for those members of your household who are going to be eating. In 15 minutes, it's gone. And then you start the half-hour process of cleaning up. <laughs> Dump all the compost into the compost, you know, put all the dishes, in, scrape them, put them into the washer. <sighs> it's getting tiring. Okay, and, and you keep going like that. Then you've got to go to the bathroom to take care of the thing. And hopefully, you're done for the night. Right? That's food. Got to do that every day, a few times, sometimes several times a day. Okay, Okay. so we're taking care of the body, we earned some money, we got the clothes, we got the food. Okay, grooming yourself. And then you got to keep yourself entertained because, you know, imagine that you didn't keep yourself, I mean, the body's difficult enough to take care of, right? But imagine, you got to take care of the mind too. Because if you don't take care of the mind, you know, if you don't keep it entertained, you don't keep it distracted, you don't keep it kind of enticed about possibilities in the future and out of the fearful past, stuff like that. If you don't keep yourself entertained, it's just like being on retreat your whole life. <laughs> right? That's dukkha, right? Okay, so then we got to do that. We got to take care of this body and this mind just like this for two, three, four, five, six, seven decades every day, and you cannot get anybody to do it for you. You can get some help to help you carry it along, but you still have to, you have to do this every day. At the end of which, what happens? Your friends. Going to your closet, look through and find the newest, nicest clothes, offer it to the undertaker, they put it on you, put you in a nice shiny box so they can come say goodbye to you. And then what? You go in the fire or you go in the ground. That's it. Over. Some would say, that was a bad investment. <laughs> On the other hand, we don't have any choice. We have to do that. Right? That's oppressive. That's oppressive. If you can open to that, just that responsibility and that, 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 the, the, the enduring comprehensive responsibility of it. It's oppressive. It just really is a burden that we carry through life all the time. The second view of this oppressive nature of this human existence is we have six sense doors. The five familiar eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body and the six is the mind. They are constantly stimulated. We are never without sensations impinging on the body that we have, to, we have to deal with. Some of them are pleasant, some of them are unpleasant. And so too, the mind, it is constantly thinking. Thinking, it's got some kind of activity. Worrying, anxiety, frustration, disappointment, self-pity, joy, happiness, planning, whatever. Right? And our ears, you cannot turn them off. You can put on the best sound counseling, sound canceling headphones you can find, and what you've heard before will still play as a DJ in your mind. <laughs> right? And your eyes, close your eyes, and visions, it doesn't take long before visions will start appearing in your eyes to keep your eyes entertained. You can't get away from the senses, right? You know, we, is it, and they're just constantly stimulated 24 7 from the time we were in the womb till now. And you can't, get, you can't get away from it. That's oppressive. Oppressive. You have to do something. Is it any wonder that some of us don't resort to just drinking ourselves into oblivion or stoning ourselves to oblivion just to get away from it for a while? Right? This is dukkha. Existential dukkha. And again, we, we somehow think that well, you know, there's just something wrong with me that I see it like this. But actually, it's said that the first noble truth is to be investigated because we live as much as possible in denial of dukkha. Trying to avoid it, minimize it, obscure it, pretend it isn't happening, rationalizing it, do anything except acknowledge this is the way it is. Because when we acknowledge this is the way it is, we have to do something about it. You know? 
So Dharma practice, this kind of what we're doing here, is we're, we're paying close enough attention to our moment-to-moment experience of the mind and body to see dukkha. How are we doing? <laughs> uh, you, uh, we've all seen plenty, haven't we? Right? You know, and part of the practice is to see the dukkha, see our own personal dukkha, body discomfort and mental discomfort and anxiety and you know, fear and all, all that stuff, and do something, find a way to relate to it, to deal with it differently than just being oppressed. It takes a lot of courage to do this practice. I, I applaud your decision to take a look. It's not easy because this is what we see. But we could also say, you know what? This is suffering. It's suffering to endure this kind of pain, this kind of insecurity, this kind of oppression. And what we're doing here is looking, discovering, and finding ways within the mind to relate to this experience, this universal experience, and to suffer less. This is compassion. As much as it might look like this is hard work and it just causes me to feel miserable, it's actually compassion for yourself to open to this is the way it is so that you can do something about it rather than just keep avoiding, keep denying, keep minimizing and hope that you just keep ahead of it. Till what? Okay, so we're looking. We're coming to realize what all beings live with. Whether you, doesn't matter what gender, what age, what location in the world, uh, what your physical abilities or limitations are, what your education is, not, it doesn't matter. We all experience dukkha. It's a reality for us. So don't just minimize or kind of, kind of withdraw from the profundity of what the Buddha is saying by kind of thinking it's my pain, it's my anxiety, it's my oppression. It's not. It's universal. Only when we know we're suffering or we're experiencing dukkha will we do anything about it. Until then, we'll keep avoiding, denying, minimizing. So now I have a question for you. Where does your dukkha come from? Why, why me? Why do I have this dukkha? Why do I feel pain, anxious, insecure, and oppressed? Well, the Buddha looked at that or discovered also, realized the truth of that the source of this dukkha is craving. Craving, clinging, attachment, wanting, however you understand that. And let me just say that craving also includes aversion, which is craving to get rid of something. So craving, well, it's clear that if we're craving for something, if we want something, physical, mental, emotional, psychological, whatever, if we want something and can't get it, that's dukkha, that's suffering. But the Buddha said, if you want something and you get it, that's also dukkha. No. Wait a minute. <laughs> I've had this, I kind of grew up with this assumption. I don't know where I got it, but I had this assumption for a long time that if I could just get what I want, then I'll be happy. Now, doesn't that sound... Doesn't that sound reasonable? You know, I mean, why else are we pursuing and scheming and strategizing to get what we want? Not to be unhappy. We're scheming and strategizing. We devote our whole life to trying to get what we want. Why? So we'll be happy and secure. And the Buddha said, hmm, that scheming, that strategizing, that clinging, that pursuit, that 
requiring is the very source of suffering. If what you want is a living thing, a person, a plant, a pet, well, you know, it's, it's, it's susceptible to disease, old age, and death. Right? If what you want is valuable, you have to work hard to get it. Once you get it, the government's going to tax it. And you have to insure it because others might want to steal it. And you've got to hide it away. And you've got to be anxious about it being stolen. Right? If what you want is digital, it'll be outdated in six months. <laughs> if what you want is an accomplishment, achievement, some knowledge, there's more knowledge being produced each year than ever existed in the world before. What is it that you're going to know that's going to give you an advantage for more than a short time? Okay, how about athletes? I'm going to be an Olympic champion. And they work hard at it. And some, you know, they win their gold medal for, you know, a very short time. Their accomplishment is superseded. What is it that you want? What is it that you're willing to work for? What is it you're slaving yourself for to get that is going to provide real, genuine sense of well-being? So the Buddha said we crave pleasant experiences. That's obvious. We prefer pleasant to unpleasant. We prefer abundance to you know, lack. We prefer praise to blame. We prefer emotional well-being to kind of fragile emotional states. We prefer friends to enemies. We, we want pleasant experiences. But he also said that we crave continued existence. Let's not get too esoteric here. Continued existence means what? Well, did you have planning mind today? Were you planning what you're going to do at the end of the retreat and, you know, planning your future and, you know, fixing up the house and, you know, what, stuff like that? who you want to meet when the retreat's over, that's called craving continued existence. Because planning is laying down the tracks and the ideas in your mind for paradise elsewhere. <laughs> you know, happiness in the, at some other time. Something better than you have now. And so we plant the seeds of, you know, actions, thoughts, whatever we can say and do to hopefully create or condition a more pleasant experience in the future. And when we get there, I mean, hey, actually, we did that last month to get here. <laughs> right? Here we are. Are we happy yet? Wait a minute. And while we're here, we're not really being happy here. We're making plans for when we're going to be happy later. And when we get there, we're going to be making plans to be happier later. We're looking for happiness in the future in all the wrong places. And we have been doing this for a long, long time. This is called samsara. We keep looking for happiness elsewhere. We're looking for security and happiness and you know, what pleasure, whatever it is. And when we get there, it's not quite as promising. It does, it's, it's not quite as fulfilling as it promised. And so we're looking for more. It just goes, around, it just goes on and on and on. Just think of all the things you've wanted in your life. You know, an education, partner, job, security, financial security, whatever it is that you want. And you've worked hard for it. And you've gotten it. Satisfied yet? No. Feeding desire only makes us more desirous. The Buddha said, you cannot satisfy this craving. It's like trying to satis quench your thirst by drinking salt water. Well, the Buddha said we also crave the end of existence or non-existence. Remember today when you had this, well, I don't know what you had, but you might have had excruciating pain in one of the sittings. You know, just like discomfort, squirmy, just can't get... Didn't you just wish for it to end? Like, I would like to not be experiencing this. I'd like it all to be over. Temporarily, at least. Or the mind, you know, when the, when the, when the mind is just kind of in, you know, hyper, 
hyper-reactive mode of fear or anxiety or whatever else. We just, we do anything to get away from it. Well, not anything, thankfully, but we'd like to. We'd like to just get rid of it. This is craving the end of having to know all this stuff. (coughs) Excuse me. So, some of us who are a little bit ahead of the curve, we think, wow, I know what to do. Go to a retreat. You know, meditation is good for you. You know, calm down, open up, take care of some of the, you know, kind of loose ends of your life and practice. So you come here and you start looking for, you know, good meditation experience. (laughs) Whatever that is. Okay. Well, as one of our friends said, nothing like a good sitting to ruin the rest of your day. Because as soon as you have some glimmer of a good sitting, calm, open, effortless, kind of clear, you keep, you know, the assumption accompanies it that this is the way it's going to be for the rest of the day, or maybe even the rest of the retreat. And it isn't. You know, it doesn't even last the whole sitting, let alone the next sitting. And then we keep looking for that again, you know, looking for happiness in all the wrong places. So, it's pretty obvious that craving is a source of a lot of suffering. Recent studies have shown that what we think will make us happy doesn't make us as happy as we think it will. (laughs) Also have revealed that what we fear or imagine will make us unhappy doesn't make us as unhappy as we imagine. Also, studies of lottery winners who have experienced, those who have won the lottery and those who have experienced catastrophic illness or accidents have found that a year after winning the lottery or a year after a diagnosis of a major uh, medical event, the baseline happiness of such people is the same as before the winning the lottery. A year after. Wow. We can only conclude from these studies that we don't really know what will make us happy. And our idea of happiness is independent of what's actually happening. Happiness is not dependent on these external conditions so much as on our own mind or attitudes towards our experience. So the first noble truth is to be investigated. The second noble truth the truth of craving, or craving itself, is to be abandoned. It's to be let go of. If we see here how we're suffering, we see our pain, we see our depression, we see our anxiety, then we work to, how do you deal with it? How can I let go of what is causing this anxiety? How can I let go of this idea of myself as suffering with anxiety or suffering this pain? Okay? So now... If the Buddha had discovered the two noble truths and just said, hey, there's dukkha, and it's caused by craving, good luck. <laughs> what, what would we do? We'd be stuck, wouldn't we? We'd be stuck with, I, I don't know what to do. Okay. Luckily, there were two more truths to be revealed and uh, to be realized, and the third noble truth is the Buddha saying, Buddha realizing that there is an end to this suffering. There is an end to dukkha. There is. And there is an end to the craving that leads to that dukkha. Okay. Now, it's often talked about in terms of, well, enlightenment, the unconditioned, nibbana, all kinds of big big words that we don't have any idea what they mean that are somehow always far away in the future from where we are right now. So I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about how what we're doing right here for the last five, six days is actually revealing to us the third noble truth. Because what we're looking for is, well, what I call dukkha-free zone. (laughs) We want to find this dukkha-free zone in our life where we don't have to kind of experience this dukkha, right? So, there's several ways that we experience this here. And the first and maybe the most obvious is 
we see when we're holding on to some useless thought, thought, plan, judgment, fantasy, something. We see, we see, wow, I'm just, and it's often, as soon as we notice that we're kind of like obsessing about something, we go, oh, let that go. Letting go is the whole second, second noble truth. Learning to let go of whatever it is you're holding on to. So I, I went to university and studied engineering in the days when all of our calculations were done with slide rule and longhand math. No handheld computers, calculators, nothing. It was all done by brain power and this little slide rule. And so I took a lot of advanced math courses and was really good at, you know, calculations. That's, that's what you do, studying engineering. So a few years after getting out of university, I went to my first retreat, you know, and as I said, I was setting up back, just kind of struggling away, but not suffering. And <laughs> when my mind wandered, it wandered off into math- mathematical calculations. I mean, that's what I had cultivated as a habit for years. So I'd be sitting here and going, okay, let's see, this building is about 15, 16 feet high, the floor area is about that, and going, let's see, multiplying out the, you know, and trying to find the cubic volume of this room, and I'd be going, and then I'd become aware, and I'd say, do I have to be doing this right now? And then I could let it go. But imagine that I never started practicing mindfulness, I'd still be doing these crazy, useless mathematical calculations kind of unconsciously. So what we discover is all these holding patterns, what I call holding patterns in our mind, what we do to take up our mental disk space just to keep from kind of spinning out. And mostly it's unconscious. And so whenever you find yourself off in a daydream, off in a la-la land, off in some ridiculous fantasy, it's pretty easy to just go, let go, right? Come back to the present moment, there. That's one way that we experience, and, and the experience is really in that moment of letting go. <laughs> oh. There's a moment of relief, moment of relief. That's a dukkha-free zone. Notice that, don't miss that. That's what we're after is that dukkha-free zone. Okay, so there's a second way that we experience uh, Duke of Free Zone. You know, the other night I spoke about all these torments that arise in the mind. And when, when you know, anxiety arises in the mind, without awareness, we feel anxious. I'm anxious. Or when fear arises in the mind, I'm afraid. But as soon as we s- cultivate some momentum to this mindful awareness, we can recognize, oh, fear has arisen and is being known. Anxiety has arisen in the mind, visiting the mind, and it's being known. Not being embedded in or overwhelmed by or entangled in that torment, stepping out of it is a dukkha-free zone. Being aware of a tormented mind state is very, very different than being tormented. It's really something to to, to recognize in your own experience that when you're caught in it, you're suffering. When you're aware of it, you're not. As the momentum of mindfulness picks up and we have more continuity to being able to recognize what's going on rather than being embedded in and entangled in, then the dukkha free zone begins to extend in time. A third way that we experience um, dukkha-free zone is, you know how Kamala and Deborah have been talking about developing loving-kindness, so that when we feel some aversion, develop loving-kindness. And today, yesterday and today, have also offered the practice of equanimity. Well, we can arrive at equanimity through a guided meditation like that, or we arrive at equanimity through insight practice where we keep seeing what arises and we see our reaction and eventually we learn to let go of our reactivity to be able to be with 
the present moment's experience as they arise with some balance and some equanimity. This equanimity, this balanced mind that's neither reaching for nor pulling away from experience is another dukkha-free zone. We're not reaching for it and we're not pulling away from it. And the mind becomes very subtle, very light, very adaptable, very pliable, can accommodate any situation in life without reactivity. Imagine that. A kind of dukkha-free zone. From that place of balance, ease, openness to all of life's experience, we begin to see something that we haven't seen before. And this is insight. This is Vipassana insight. Another way of experiencing dukkha-free zone. For example, we come to these understandings that a lot of what we're experiencing has this dukkha characteristic. It's either painful or it's unstable and causes an insecurity or it's oppressive. And when you're seeing the present moment, moment after moment, and you're not reacting, and you see that you understand this is the nature of all experience. Its nature is the dukkha characteristic. It has the nature of the dukkha characteristic. When you see that, and you're not caught in reactivity to it, the mind doesn't reach for anything. Now remember the second noble truth is when the mind grasps clings, craves, it's the cause of dukkha. So when the mind doesn't grasp, doesn't cling, and doesn't crave, it just lets things be the way they are. Understanding that this is dukkha. Why, if you really understand that something is painful, would you reach for it and hold it? Or you know it's oppressive? Or you know it's not going to provide the stability and security that you like? It's just unstable. The mind that knows that, realizes that, doesn't reach for anything. It just sees this is the way it is, remains at ease, remains balanced, remains free of clinging, craving, therefore free of dukkha. The second thing we realize is that all these experiences that we have, you know, the physical, the mental, the pleasant, the unpleasant, the subtle, the gross, whatever, all, everything, they arise due to causes and conditions that are outside of our control. Mostly outside of our control. We don't get to control the weather, and we don't get to control the body, we can barely... I can't say that we can control the mind, we can train the mind, but you know, the mind has a mind of its own. And... Okay, so when we see that, wow, all these experiences are like you know, like a, like a rainbow in the sky. You know, a rainbow in the sky, you look over there and there it is. And you think, wow, that's great. But we understand that it's just an appearance due to conditions. Moisture, sunlight, working eyes, angle of viewing. When all those conditions are there, a rainbow appears. None of us would ever reach for that rainbow to kind of package it and send it to a friend. Right. Because there's nothing there. There really is nothing there. It is insubstantial. It has no in inherent existence. We understand this about all of our experience. There is no inherent entityness to anything that we experience. They are all appearances due to, well, causes and conditions. Some of them are colorful like a rainbow, and some of them aren't. But nevertheless, we understand insight. The insight into this impersonal uh, nature understands that whatever we see out there, whatever we feel out there, whatever we imagine out there is essenceless. It has no inherent entityness. And if you know that nothing is more substantial than a rainbow, the mind is not going to reach for or grasp, try to grasp it. It's just going to say, Wow, beautiful rainbow. I get it. But it's nothing to hold on to. You understand that. And the third thing that we learn through insight knowledge is that whatever appears and we see for a moment, that we observe, that we experience for a moment, 
It's just a moment. It doesn't last much longer than that. It just appears due to causes and conditions. When those causes and conditions change, that appearance disappears, and the rainbow's gone. It's impermanent. It's just an ephemeral, evanescent, conditioned thing that just is, is temporarily there for your enjoyment. It's gone. If you try to grasp it, if you try to hold on to it, well, you're not going to have much luck. Right? So when we understand these are the characteristics, they're painful, or they're oppressive, they're unstable, they're impersonal, they're conditioned, they have no essence, and they're impermanent, they don't last. When the mind realizes this about everything that we experience, it doesn't reach for anything. And yet it's able to hang back here, observe everything, be aware of everything, appreciate the beauty of everything, but not grasp anything. That's dukkha-free zone. Insight frees us from grasping. Mirage, what we think is pleasant, what we think is going to provide a stable security for us. We don't reach. And if we're not holding on, if we're not grasping, we're not holding on, you don't suffer. You see, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. Appearances, conditions come together and create an appearance every moment of our life. Enjoy the show. There it is. But don't try to hold on. We understand that through insight. And from this place of balanced non-grasping, if you will, from seeing the nature of all phenomena, there's one more dukkha-free zone. When the mind really sees there's nothing to grasp, there's nothing to hold on, there's, it's, there's, it's just appearances. The mind can really let go of everything. And when the mind lets go of everything, it may fall into or leap into the unconditioned. That which does not arise due to causes and conditions. This is Nibbana. This is Nibbana. And the access and realizing Nibbana forever changes your mind. Frees the mind from some forms of grasping, therefore some forms of suffering. And if we practice, if we continue practice and develop more of this understanding, more of this realization, more of this letting go, suffering becomes less and less. This is the path we're on. We have to see. We have to see dukkha. You know, not because we're failures or not because we're inadequate, but because that's the way it is. And at first we're going to resist this knowledge of dukkha. We, we don't want it to be that way, but eventually we come to accept this is the way it is. And when we do, while dukkha is painful, understanding dukkha is liberating. This is the third noble truth that the Buddha is talking to. The Buddha said of the end of suffering, third noble truth, it is deep, hard to see, hard to understand. It is peaceful, it is sublime, it is beyond mere reasoning, but it is intelligible to the wise. It can be realized. We use words like peace, contentment, the sublime, to point to this truth. But this truth, this unconditioned, is ineffable. It has no size, no shape, no time, no location, no quality, no characteristic, except peace. This third noble truth is to be realized by each one of us. Through our practice, just as we're doing here, we gradually come to know, come to know the knowledges that I've just talked about and realize peace. The way that we're practicing here is the fourth noble truth. The fourth noble truth is the path, the eight, noble eightfold path, the eightfold factors, the eight factors of the noble path are really three trainings. The first training is the training in sila, or living in harmony, that we're doing here with the precepts. This is where we let go of our intention to harm, 
through speaking and acting, letting go. And when we're able to let go of harmful speech and actions, we get to enjoy this happiness of living in harmony. The second training of the Noble Eightfold Path is mindfulness to the point of samadhi, or what I talked about, no torments in the mind for sustained periods of time. When we see, we're not caught by the torments. We see what arises, we don't react, we don't get caught in the torment, but we see this is what's going on. This frees the mind from obsessive suffering. Tranquility, a sense of ease, a sense of non-reactivity in our life, seclusion from the torments, dukkha-free. And the third training is the training in insight, or the training in vipassana. And I've spoken about the insights of the three characteristics and how they free us from grasping, they free us from clinging, they free us from craving, and the mind is able to kind of experience life without grasping, without clinging, without holding on. Utterly confident in that knowledge. This is the way to go. This is the Noble Eightfold Path, the fourth noble truth. And why, you might say, the Buddha was asked, why did he teach these four noble truths? Because he said it's beneficial. It belongs to the fundamentals of the holy life. It leads to disenchantment. It leads to dispassion. It leads to cessation. It leads to peace. It leads to direct knowledge, enlightenment, and nibbana. And that's why the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths. So that we have a map. We have a very clear, precise map. This is the journey we're on. Awakening to the fullness of human experience in order to stop suffering. If you don't care about your suffering, you're in the wrong place. If you care about your suffering, this is the map. This is what we're doing here. All of our efforts today have been in fulfillment of the Noble Eightfold Path. Living in harmony, clearing, purifying the mind for momentary relief, and developing some understanding of the way things are. And coming to kind of live in harmony with what we understand is the truth of things. So that we're not living, struggling against the way things are. This is the Buddha's invitation. These are the teachings. Come and see for yourself. It sounds good. You know, it's hard work. But only you can confirm for yourself. Don't just believe me. Don't just believe the books either. But check it out. Okay. So the Buddha, when asked, he says... The purpose of my teaching of the holy life of the Dharma is not for gaining merit, not for good karma, nor for doing good deeds, nor for rapture and joy, nor for concentration and samadhi, but for the sure heart's release. This and this alone is the reason for the teachings of the Buddha. The sure heart's release, meaning the heart lets go. Let's go. So, here we are. It's our choice, isn't it? The interesting thing about the Four Noble Truths, the interesting thing about the practice, is if you decide, if you resolve in your heart that you want to stop suffering, and you have some little bit of faith in the Buddhist teachings, or this map, and you start on the journey of awakening, nobody can stop you. Nobody. It's a do-it-yourself job, and it, it may take some time, but nobody can stop you. This is the way, this is the laws of nature, the law that the Buddha realized and shared with us so that we can understand it and confirm it for ourselves. 
sometimes it's important to put our practice in this in this uh, size of a container. You know, we struggle with our knee pain and our restless mind and you know, little irritations. It's not just for that. It's for this possibility of understanding and freeing the mind, freeing the heart. So let's let these words settle down for a minute. The purpose of my teaching of the holy life of the Dharma is not for gaining merit, nor good deeds, nor rapture, nor concentration, but for the sure heart's release. This and this alone is the reason for the teachings of the Buddha. <laughs> 